Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Way of Product Design. I'm your host, Caden Damiano. This podcast has one mission, help product designers generate massive value for their clients, their companies, and themselves so they can do the work they enjoy the most. We know design is valuable, but how can you unlock the true value design in your work? To help with this, I interview top performers in design, product management, and engineering so you can understand what's valuable to your stakeholders, your bosses, and your customers. So enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Hey listeners, it's Caden here. Today I have a really cool guest. When I started the podcast, it was me doing my best and hustling with my like iPad to record interviews, people that I thought were cool, but I didn't, ha- I didn't have any idea of like how interesting the future guests of the show would be. But today I'm bringing on uh, Carrie Jenkins and she's the CEO of this uh, agency called Substantial. It's a digital innovation and build studio in the greater Seattle area. I think you are the first guest, Carrie, to be on the show from Seattle. So congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm really yeah, trying to... Yeah, really trying to, you know, broaden the scope. Um, so glad to get into Seattle. But just a quick rap sheet, Substantial's got a pretty awesome track record. They've partnered with organizations like Amazon, Google, Mercedes-Benz, the Gates Foundation. I even saw like the Bezos Foundation. So you're helping all the billionaires spend their money. All the foundations. <laughs> yeah. And then IDEO is a client. So I'm wondering how that works with an agency and an agency work collaborating together. I've looked at your guys' case studies 
I think it's really cool what you're doing. Carrie, just thanks for coming on. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And yeah, Substantial's worked with a, a lot of different clients, a lot of startups too. I think the big names are the ones that people recognize, but we've helped a lot of startups in our 14 years. And we've helped clients in all sorts of different ways. A lot of what we've done is digital product for sure. And that's certainly a core, core capability of ours. But we do a lot of design research as well. In particular right now, equity center research is a big focus for us. And we've done a lot of technical technical consulting and a lot of capacity building. So as you know, on the West Coast, product cultures, <laughs> product cultures king and queen. So we help people, companies, startups, companies who want to behave more like startups, build out a culture that really feeds healthy innovation. And that looks different for all sorts of clients. It can be helping them create their design and build a team in-house. It can mean showing them how to do it by working closely with them. That's the primary way that we do capacity building is that we do projects with these companies and, and teach as we work. And then we gracefully hand their baby back to them and they, they take it on as prepared parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, an, that's an awesome analogy. So you're, you guys are Ryan Rumsey. He wrote the the business thinking for designers for Envision, and he he calls his practice unconsulting. He's like the consultant's business model is to have returning business. So you're giving him advice that makes him dependent on you. It sounds like you guys are unconsultants that you like just yeah. want people to be more self, just really like self reliant when it comes to ethically making products and services. Yeah, that's right. I like to say that substantial is like the most successful consultancy with no consultants uh, because we don't, I don't think we see ourselves th that way in the traditional sense. We're much more partners to our clients. We don't even like to call ourselves an agency uh, because yeah. <laughs> we usually call ourselves a studio. And the, the reason being is that there's the traditional agency mindset is really codependent, right? You're creating long-term relationships that you want to never end. And we certainly have clients we've worked with for, for years, but when we are doing product work, research work, the intent of that is to help them succeed, to help them be the best they can be. And usually that means working with them for some set amount of time. And like I said, gracefully handing everything back to them with them more capable, um, more confident and with a healthier approach to how they sustain the work we've done with them or even approach new work. And so we have clients that come to us for cycles, could be a year or more, and then they go back and they do their own thing. They might come to back to us when they want a full cell refresh, or they might come to us for a totally different problem that they want to solve. But we don't have those typical agency relationships where, you know, you create that codependency, right? Our intent is uh, and, and this plays a lot, this is relevant a lot to my belief on an ethical innovation, honestly, is our intent is to help create as many really well-seasoned and experienced and confident uh, creators that we can. And we have a lot of experience in that area. And we learn too, by the way, by that process. It's a, a, a process that feeds both us and our clients. Yeah. So when I was reading the substantial website and just researching for this interview, going along like the lines of you saying that you're not a consultancy, you're a studio, which <laughs> means that there's craftsmen and professionals that work there rather than just uh, really smart MBA graduates. And that your mission statement is that you believe that like technologists are like in the best position to 
really fix a lot of the world's problems. I love the word technologist. When I I got into design, I didn't like the term designer because it's commonly referred to just you know, making posters and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I, I really, I really identify myself more as like a creative technologist. Do you choose that word technologist because it, it does involve a lot more than just design? Do you choose the word technologist because there's a lot of different professions that could actually be involved in the innovation process? Is there like a reason yeah. behind that? Yeah, that's exactly it. I'm not a designer or developer by trade, but I consider myself a technologist. I am yeah. leading a company and has for many years led teams that solve problems typically through technology. And so I, I do choose that term to be somewhat agnostic of what your role may be in that because we're all in the end creating uh, an output that is is technology related. Even our, so we do, we do a lot of really large and complex research only projects. And even those, even though the output is not, let's say a product, that research is usually getting fed into a system that is an ecosystem of many products and services. So even service design typically has a technology slant because the way we deliver services in, in the modern world right now is, is through technology. All of our clients are delivering it through technology. So I do choose that word specifically so that you don't have to stop and think, well, I'm a designer, am I a technologist? Or I'm a developer, I guess, I'm only a technologist. Like it's really about the output of what we're doing. And these days in, in business and in, in the social sector, it's almost always going to touch technology, whether that's in distribution or whether that's um, the primary means of delivery, like it's going to be a, you know, part of a technology product. Yeah, and technologist, it just basically says that you're solving problems with the intent to either automate it, make it more affordable, like you're having like a machine <laughs> do it and instead of using things like policies, which is like an operations Right. Ben, yeah, that's, right. That's you, a good contrast there. Right. Yeah. So I do, I do think that's really interesting because I think, yeah, technology, I think it's the profession of a technologist is in vogue. There's a lot of people that, like you said, don't have like an engineering or design background, but they are getting into technology. There is like this belief that we could automate everything. We could make, we could disrupt everything. But as you pointed out in articles and in a lot of like your, your engagements, because you're quite the thought leader, there's an issue with this becoming popular. It's a good thing that people are like wanting to innovate more and solve more problems with technology, but there's almost like a dark side or to this like double-edged sword. There's unethical uses of technology. Like you've automated something, but you've taken someone's right to privacy as a result, in one of your uh, recent articles that I looked at, you said that, and I quote, we have taught a generation of technologists and leaders that the only outcome that matters is money. Can you expound a little bit on how this like actually stifles innovation and helps innovation? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm referring to that it, uh, when I said that, and I still believe it, and I actually say it fairly often <laughs> because no. I believe it, and sitting in the center of, or at least the Northern... <laughs> part mm -hmm. of the West Coast uh, entrepreneurial and startup culture and, and worked many years in technology servicing both, like I said, enterprises and startups. And so I say that both as a consumer of technology, but as a leader of a technology company, what we have done over the last 15, 20 years is created a system that is in all 
or at least almost always seeking funding constantly. And that that funding is either coming from the enterprise that you're working within, it's coming from a funder, like Welfare Foundation, they all have outside funding uh, and grants, or it's coming from VCs, which is the most common funding you hear about in the startup culture, particularly. And that alone creates um, an issue where those funders want, and in, in VC land, that return is right, is creating an entire economy in and of itself. And we're all aware of that. We hear, or at least we should be aware that the, the five biggest companies in the entire world and in history, from a revenue standpoint, are, are technology companies who have, are building products that we interact with every single day, services and products that almost all of us are using every single day. And revenue is their goal, which means engagement is their goal, which means they're selling ads. There's a lot of trickle down things about that, but our well-being is not their goal. It's sticky eyeballs. That's that's what they need. And so when you, that that accounts for a huge amount of, right, just those five companies accounts for a massive amount of the technology that we are engaging in. And the, in ways that people like who aren't technologists might not even understand, like you might not understand that Amazon, where you buy all of your myriad of products is also AWS, which is infrastructure for gigantic percentage of web property out there. Same thing with Microsoft, right? So I don't think people understand the tentacles um, from those companies alone. And then the startup culture, again, is they want to be the next one of those companies. So from that perspective, think about those both the people who are working at those large companies who are very often compensated with equity. Same thing in startup land. So you're seeking out enough success to attract funding. And then once you get that funding, you are under an immense amount of pressure to continue growth and scale to keep that funding and to tend to achieve the next series, whatever it may be. Those workers are also most often compensated with equity. So everyone's compensation now is tied into one thing, and it's usually revenue and or profit, which is all going to, which is also growth or scale. And so even in situations where it's Uber or even Amazon, it's early days when they're like, well, we're not going to make a profit for some amount of time, scale and growth were everything that was important. So that's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem <laughs> is that we now have all of these engineers, designers, product managers, budding leaders coming right out of college and they're entering into a job stream at one of these places and they're getting paid a, a lot of money. I have no problems with people being highly compensated. <laughs> That's important, but it, it, they stay in that system for a really long time. So the only thing they learn is how to succeed in that system. And it's very hard to leave that environment. And as a person who recruits talent, right, for my own company, um, I, certainly I have a conflict of interest with this opinion that I'll just call out right there. I compete with startups and the large technology companies. I'm in Seattle, so all of the largest technology companies are represented here. And I can't, I, I can't compete with that because this is a group of people that have been taught that they should go to the highest Bitter. And they don't know the difference between the work that you might do and then the impact you might have at a very large organization versus a smaller organization. And it's a very hard lesson to, to teach in this environment, right, where everyone is competing so much for talent. And so 
you can imagine if everyone is thinking the most important objective is this, and it's most often, most often going to be growth and revenue, all of their decision-making, all of their frameworks, all of the constraints they put on themselves when they're thinking about innovating, being creative, are going to be pointed in that direction. And so there's all sorts of problem solving that could happen around that. And I'm a big believer in, in talking about systems, right? Products are not isolated, right? They, they exist, products and services all exist in, in an ecosystem. Very few of those ecosystems are getting created out of nowhere. Even in disruption, the whole idea of that is it's disrupting an existing ecosystem, right? Most of the ecosystems we're all working in are in existence in some shape or form. Areas around that ecosystem that are not centered on just revenue and growth are ripe for innovation, are ripe for actually creating something that can solve really big problems, can help uh, users, can help vulnerable populations in particular, can help accessibility, can bring out services to a group that might not have access to them. There's all of these things they can do. But if they're not pointed, if they're sitting outside the realm of scale, growth, revenue, and profit, they just get they just get ignored. Certainly in the earliest days. Now I think most companies will tell themselves they'll get to that. You start small. This is your MVP, as we say in in product culture. This little circle in the middle, and then all those outliers will get to those. We'll get to those. And the truth is, that one, most startups fail before they ever get to them. But two, once you're in the trap, right? <laughs> Once you're in the revenue game and the growth game and all of that, you it's very hard to defocus yourself. And a ton of unintended consequences happen. And there's both, when we talk about ethical technology, we are not just talking about bad actors, right? There's certainly plenty of people who are deliberately using technology to inflict harm uh, or to inflict inequity. But there's also lots and lots of technologists who are creating ethically questionable services and products because they're just not thinking deeply enough about the consequences outside of that center ring of revenue and growth and scale. They're just not taking the time to think about it and prioritizing the time to think about it. Yeah, so like the main problem is that there's just a lot of smart people that just go into tech and they get paid these stupid money. <laughs> Like, and it's hard once you start making that kind of money to like downgrade to something like a more like vision driven company. And I think, yeah, so I read this book recently, it's called How Innovation Works. I think his name is Matt Ridley. And it's really good because he's, it, I, I, lo I love reading books from like just investigative like journalists that just go deeply into, <laughs> and they're like, okay, basically the whole premise is that innovation is like the culmination of a bunch of people's ideas that have been like tinkered and iterated on until eventually someone gets lucky and gets like the Nobel Peace Prize or the patent <laughs> based <laughs> off everyone else's work. But so he'll say that, oh, this person that made like gen uh, gene editing for crops so that like our crops don't die. He got this idea from this guy at a conference and then et cetera. But he, yeah, he talks about how it's just, it's the product of iteration and, and it, the culmination of a lot of like smart, intelligent minds. But what happens when a lot of those minds are getting brain drained into companies that aren't really innovating, they're making very profitable businesses. But do you think if the product or service is not ethical, is it really, can it still be innovation if it's not ethical? It depends on your 
yeah, your personal definition of innovation yeah. for me, yes, could something be innovative, but not yeah. particularly thought out or good for certain audiences? Something can be great for some audiences, right? Like mm. I, I will, I'll pick on Uber, they're huge. I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said a million times before. Uber is innovative, right? It changed transportation across the globe, honestly. And it is innovative. There's no doubt in my mind that it's innovative. Does it hurt parties that are involved in that ecosystem? It absolutely does. It hurts the drivers mm -hmm. first and foremost because they're really not getting paid fairly nor are they protected in the ways they should be. They can hurt existing transportation systems in cities that are not prepared to respond to something as disruptive as Uber coming to their city. And we've seen that play out over the last five, six, seven years. And that's the reason why there's more legislation happening, more regulatory like step-ins that cities just making their own um, rules and guidelines about how they're going to let uh, trans, you know, app-driven transportation companies come into the city. It doesn't mean that there weren't good things that came out of it. Making transportation more accessible in areas that don't have mass transit options is a good thing. It, it's that there's all these other there's all these other issues. There's all those other rings mm. like I was talking about that we don't tend to think about first in technology because we're moving too fast and we're proud of moving fast, right? Like we, we have placed a premium and pride and so much emphasis on how fast we move. We don't take the time to do that. We're like, we'll fix it later. And later when you're talking about the scale of things like Uber is that's really dangerous when it comes to healthcare. Uh, when you're building products in healthcare, that's really dangerous. And, and certainly any of the large technology platforms, because of the scale of users we're talking about, that's a dangerous game to play. And, and we've seen the consequences. We've seen consequences that I don't think, honestly, we necessarily could have foreseen. Facebook has changed the world. It truly has. Should we have known earlier, and I don't mean five years ago or six years ago when Arab Spring happened, because it was abundantly clear there the way Facebook could be used. But in the early days, is it Mark Zuckerberg's fault that when he was in college coming up with an app to rate the attractiveness of women, that he didn't occur to him in that moment that he could destroy democracy with this tool? No, that's, that, that isn't how he could have done systems thinking in his Harvard dorm room and figured out what has happened with Facebook. It has changed the world in a way that I don't think could have been predicted 15, 20 years ago but it could have been predicted 15 years ago or 10 years ago, and then again, five years ago. And it was lots of ethicists, former employees, lots of people came out, particularly once Arab Spring happened and said that this could be used in ways that we are not protecting against. And they made the choices they made. But I think the thing I will say about the, the high salaries, because I get a lot of questions around this, is that the high salaries that technology companies are paying are not an accident. <laughs> For a reason, it, it is absolutely to engender loyalty, tenure, a mindset that overlooks the little things that make you question why you're, that's what the money is for. And they all have a certain amount of attrition built into them for sure. So it's not like they expect everyone to stay there forever, but money's not an accident. The equity is not an accident. All of these things are proven to engender vast amounts of loyalty and that's that's what they're getting and the brain drain is that's why it happens people get it. it's not just the paycheck it's that the paycheck creates a feeling of uh, dependency and that dependency manifests in loyalty yeah thanks for pointing that out because i think it's not innovation is not like a it doesn't have technically doesn't have anything to do with ethics 
are making the world a better place for everybody. Usually when people say they want to make the world a better place, it's usually, it's funny though, like you said, like the, the people that are really benefiting the most from like the success of these tech companies are just the employees and this economy of like really right. well compensated knowledge workers. And then they're like outpricing homes in these communities and stuff and actually like making it worse with how successful we are. And in that book I mentioned, he talks about like that innovation is an invention. It's not making something, it's just making something more accessible, cheaper, more like affordable. And Uber does that, right? Is it makes transportation more affordable and accessible for us, <laughs> especially the technology workers that could afford to get like consistent rides on Uber. But yeah, it has nothing really to do with ethics. But I think there's a reason why you guys don't focus on ethical design at Substantial. You focus on something called optimistic design. Could you explain a little bit about like why you chose optimism as like the focus rather than like ethics. There are some, there are some real specific things that we do offer our clients as far as ethical innovation, which is a broad and maybe overly vague term. Yes. A specific way of thinking about it would be like for many of our clients, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we do research that is equity centered research, which is a step further than human centered research. It has the, it has the participants in mind and is it has some specific principles that we put into play there. So there are some things very specific that I would put in that umbrella of like ethical innovation that we offer. But digital optimism is something that we were really trying to capture about the kind of technology company we wanted. And optimism in this case, and this is true for my for myself as well, is not blinders, Pollyanna, rose-colored glasses optimism. It's let's be really clear about who we are, where we are, why we got here, but still be 100% committed to doing good things with technology. And that's what digital optimism is about. It's about understanding that there's great power that technologists wield, that, that these platforms wield, but we can choose what we do with that power. We still have vast amounts of agency to decide how to utilize that power. And that to me is really about saying we we can do that. We just have to we have to choose to do it. And I talk to people all the time about individual agency as a technologist, and, and I can't emphasize it enough. Yes, it feels very hard if you're sitting in a very large company making a very large paycheck and being compensated with you know equity to stand up and say why would we do it like this. Uh, wouldn't this, won't this cause this effect or every single day in meetings all over designers and engineers and strategists and analysts and researchers were getting together and having small and large conversations about what happens next in their particular area of expertise and their domain. And every one of those moments is, is a chance to do better, to be optimistic about the power that you have and to choose to ask hard questions and do something about the answers. I can't emphasize that enough, the individual agency that we have. And if you have that individual agency, being pessimistic and suggesting to yourself that we can't ever, we can't ever control this anymore. We can't ever, there's no way we can make AI ethical at this point because the data sets are all gnarly. And um, there's no way I can divorce myself from Google at this point because <laughs> my whole life is running through it. Yeah. Like, that's not helpful. We're smarter than that. We're a very smart group of people, technologists. Do some research, put some different practices in your life, and you really can make a difference. 
Yeah. So like optimistic design is really just saying that, Hey, like we can include in, in the design process in the innovation process, a consideration of what is this going to break? Is that what stake, what do you say? Equity-based research is based off of is like finding out like the consequences of us going down a certain direction or. Equity-centered research is really about the participants in the research. So rather than, it's not necessarily focusing on the outcomes because the outcomes would be the same, whether, and I would say that equity-centered research is certainly has its start in human-centered research and human-centered design. But what it's really about is thinking about the actual participants in the research. So for instance, we do a lot of work in the education space. And so we're doing a lot of research with actual students. Many of those students are marginalized or in vulnerable communities. What does it mean to do research with those participants and designing the studies to make sure we're taking that account? That could mean, in some cases, that means using a cultural moderator, someone who has experience, Mm. specific experience with that demographic and group to be a part of the research study to make sure that we are being buttoned up about what that particular group needs to be communicated effectively with. Because research is only as good as, as what you get back. You can do all these steps, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that doesn't ensure that it's going to be as high quality research as it could be. And so that's one example that we deploy quite a bit equity-centered research. And it's very important in particular, edutech, it's easy to see that with the demographics that are involved in trying to make education more accessible, you can see why equity-centered research would be um, a really great set of tools to have in your toolkit, but it, it really could be applied to any area, health tech for sure, and even FinTech, if you are trying to reach populations that are not the ones that just sit in the very center, the center, the center of the road, <laughs> as they say. So yeah, we optimistic design is, it, it's the same idea as digital optimism. It's just being really specific about, in particular, the power that designers have to drop thinking about things in a more holistic way. Tell me a little bit more about these moderators. Do you just hire them as like subject matter experts to come yeah. in? Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly like that. We we have we have some that can do this in-house. We have other um, consultants we work with. It really depends on the subject matter working. Like I, I said, we do this in education, but yeah, we, we bring in the subject matter experts to partner with us to ensure that we're doing this research with the participants in mind. And I think that's that's a really key here, that it's not about the outcomes of the research that's, that is most important. We'll put that over there. It's not that it's not important. It's that if you focus on the participants, you're going to get, you're going to get better research anyway. And then those outcomes will come. Yeah. The, so I think like a good example is like diversity in design. I interviewed, I interviewed this designer named Trill Cobb. Actually, he's from Seattle. Just kidding. You're not the first. Oh, he's at, my, he's, <laughs> at my, he's at, he's at Microsoft at the big tech. Many, but anyways, when he was in Dallas, he talked to, he did a lot of work on you know, teaching design thinking to like underrepresented communities in Dallas. And they did this design sprint and they're like, Hey, pick any problem. And uh, these kids, they just, they live in like the, I would say like rougher parts of town and the the problems they're coming up with were things that like, I never, from my personal life experience, never would have thought of. And I can only imagine actually doing that research myself without someone that actually has experience. So this one kid, he was coming up with a solution to prevent 
kids getting hit by cars because, you know, playing the streets and stuff. And he was designing like uh sign it to improve lower mortality rates, but that's because of where he comes from and his life experiences. So I think that's just super cool and interesting that as a research quality assurance methodology is to actually hire someone that's from yeah. that background, that story. I think one of the things I like to emphasize about anything in this sort of ethical innovation is that the intent of it is to have higher quality outputs. The intent of it is not to go through, it's certainly not a compliance exercise. It's not about what are the regulations. It is really about a higher quality output. And equity-centered research is is a really good example of why that results in higher quality output. And I get questions all the time about when I say ethical innovation or responsible technology, if that it's only only work in social impact space or social services space. And I want to be really clear, that's not what I mean. Ethical innovation can happen for profit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're doing it for profit. I'm not a nonprofit. It's not about, I, I have no problem with any exchange of something valuable for a fair price. I don't have a problem with that. And in fact, I think a big problem with those very large technology companies is that they're giving the products away for free. And and they're not really giving away the product for free, but that's right, that's the MO to get more eyeballs and engagement. So when it comes to, can you do ethical innovation in a for-profit environment or a large, very large company? Yes, you can. And it does happen. It, there's ethical innovation happening at even the largest companies that are doing some of the you know, things that they shouldn't be doing in other areas. These companies are very large. They have many teams. And there's lots of good work happening at all of them. Those very smart people that they have recruited are doing some really excellent work. But that doesn't mean that there's not some really questionable things happening in other parts of the company. And when companies get this large, that's, that happens even in non-technology companies. But I just want to make make sure that's clear that like equity-centered research, for instance, is not something you would only deploy in education or even healthcare. It could be deployed everywhere and it will make your research stronger. Mm-hmm. I yeah. So I would go on, I mean, this is my optimism, but I would yeah. say that the majority of technologists, even at the largest company, are, are good actors and good people. Yes. They're not going to work thinking that they were going to destroy the democracy or ruin an entire generation's mental health. Like I, nobody, I don't think anybody is waking up excited that's what their job is or thinks that's what their job is. And it's funny, I did a panel not too long ago about ethics and technology. And one of the panelists, Renee Cummings, she's great. Look her up if you're a listener, said, let's not always call it unintended consequences because we don't want to give them a pass. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's really intended consequences. And I... That really stuck with me uh, because I probably was in a, a, overusing the term unintended consequences. Yes. When you do systems thinking, for instance, you want to think about all of the things in the ecosystem and what could happen, um, what those unintended consequences are. But we also need to be really honest about what some of intended consequences are. And again, if you think about that center circle that I was talking about earlier, that revenue scale, profit, there are some intended consequences to succeed in that area. And we need to talk about those too. So I, I don't want to give, I both, this is the optimist in me, I, I don't want the, people to think that the majority of technologists, even at large companies, are bad actors, because I don't think that's true. I think they're really smart people who really want to change the world in a positive way. But at the same time, I'm also not going to give everybody a pass with the phrase unintended consequences, because 
we make choices, right? This is the individual agency. And it wouldn't be a bad idea when you're mapping out your ecosystem, which is something I recommend that everyone does, product manager, whatever. If you're in QA, understand the ecosystem that the work you're doing is sitting in, intended consequences, and think about that. Yeah. And just because you're early on as a company doesn't mean you could postpone the good intended consequences. And you could also, and like you said, you can make money doing, making great products and services. There's nothing wrong with making money. It's actually important you make money, but how you make that money, I think no one really talks about and they're willing to compromise to push revenue numbers. And you touched on a little bit, but yeah, you have mentioned that assume like the kind of like the mantra is, is assume your ecosystem is complex and map it out. Just assume yeah. it is. Even if you have a perceived simple product, like how can, just assume that you don't know everything, you don't see everything and do some ecosystem mapping. But you know what I've noticed, especially in these new up and coming technologists is that, uh, systems thinking and mapping are considered like part of the job. Like when I make like an ecosystem app or a concept app, they're like, oh, that's, this is cool, but this isn't your job. Like where are the wireframes? And, and another, two other podcasters, Tanner Christensen and his wife, Jasmine Friedel talked about in their podcast, New Layer, that these things like information architecture and systems thinking and mapping are like dying arts. I even had a design student that was studying in a bootcamp ask me, like when I mentioned like information architecture and like a guest lecture I gave, he's like, oh, what is that? <laughs> and he's like, maybe a few months in to this bootcamp. And I'm like oh, great. Like maybe this is like a systematic thing, like why we have a lot of these unintended consequences. Can you explain why people should adopt like systems mapping as like something is, that is essential for a, a good rigorous innovation process? Yeah, I think that it takes a certain degree of humility for people in the innovation space to admit that they don't know everything. And so what I've seen happening over, over the last decade in particular, which I think speaks to some of the, the, the consequences that you're talking about, is that there is a just massive prioritization of speed to market and this idea of an MVP. And the two things are interrelated in the sense that we want to get to market and test and market as soon as we can. So we're going to come out with something fairly rudimentary and not as fully baked so that we can learn in the market and that will give us all the information we need. And that's all in the, I think in the interest of speed and experimentation. I don't think it's all wrong, but I think that's the reason why designers who are coming into this world or been in this world for less than a decade or just coming into it had are gaining a skill set that's very strong, that's very much in tactical like design, which is UX, UI to support learning and experimentation out in the marketplace. It's, that's not a bad thing to have at all. And it's still a part of everything we do. So I don't want to suggest that that's not important, but there is this whole other layer of strategic design and research that really should be happening. And it doesn't have to happen all before you do those other things. It can happen in, in concert, but it does need to happen. And that is a much more holistic view of the problem space that you are working in. And do you understand that? 
And if you don't understand it, then how are you really achieving product market fit? And how are you right picking it? And I think that's where, when we talk to startups in particular, uh, or even our larger organizations that are very certain they should be moving as fast as they can, this is the kind of conversation we have with them. Like we can move fast and we do move fast, but skipping whole steps, hoping you're going to get that kind of information in market is a mistake. There's a certain level of research and understanding and analysis of the space, the problem space you're in that will make your product. And the sooner you understand it, the sooner you can try to have experiments around that understanding, the sooner you can pivot if you are off the mark. All of the other things you want to be able to do quickly will happen more thoughtfully and, and at a higher quality. And that's not always an easy sell because these things take time and they take skills and most people, or at least a lot of people think they have all the answers. Like, oh no, I understand my problem space. It's simple, which is why I say, assume it's not, mm -hmm. assume it's complex. And that phrase is both to remind people to have a little bit of humility, even very experienced people, including people like myself, who've been doing this for 20 years, the people on my staff, assume it's complex and take the time to really map it out and, and then interrogate that map. You can't just make the pretty picture and then be like, now we know and go. <laughs> like you have to interrogate the map. You have to have the, the deeper conversations. And usually doing a map like that is going to, is going to take a little, it's going to take some research of some sort. Uh, I, people always seem to think that they're, what they're releasing their product in is a simpler ecosystem than it actually is. And so I do try to remind people. <laughs> Yeah. And when you map out that complexity, it's almost guaranteed that there is like something that is high stakes that you will break with the original solution that you have in mind. Uh, it, yeah. almost bring, it brings up those tough conversations pretty early on. It does. And this is a skill set. Like it, sh it should be being taught to designers, but I also think systems mapping is something the whole team, if you have a team of people who are working on like service or that'd be really nice. Team, <laughs> should participate in. I don't think this is something designers should be doing in isolation. I know that, you know, I live in a dream world, but in my opinion, it shouldn't be done in isolation. I think the entire team should be a part of mapping it out because that, that builds a stronger, a stronger team culture and a stronger understanding of where everyone's marching towards. And so I'm lucky enough, our chief design officer, Cheryl Kababa, look her up. She's amazing, is very experienced and an industry expert in systems thinking. She has a book coming out early next year. I can't really do it. I can't, I don't have a link. I don't even have a title yet, but it's a systems thinking book. Cool. Um, and I have learned phenomenal things from her. And she does workshops both for us internally to remind us how to think about it this way. She does them externally all the time. She does a lot of work out in the community specifically around systems thinking. And I think it's probably for the, some of the reasons you're saying too, is that it's not, it, people are not making as much as they used to. It's also not rewarded going, going back to the economics of our industry as it's okay. Really like for a lot of startups, especially not mature product organizations, it's okay. What can we put into this executive deck so that they give us more money? What could we promise them so that they give us more money? And it's almost like the economics of, oh, like we actually thought deeply about this. We mapped out the system and we found these problems and this is how we're going to address it for executives. It's almost like a can of worms. Like it's not really rewarded yeah. <laughs> to, to do that. So you don't do it to get rewarded, do it because it's going to improve your output. Yeah, no, it's a fair point though. That I talk about individual agency quite a bit, but I, I'm not going to lie and say that when you 
you know, point something out that's one on one of those outer rings that is in direct friction or conflict with achieving the things in the inner ring, like profit, scale, revenue, whatever, you're not going to get a medal. You're going to say it and it's going to land like possibly a thud, but at the same time, it can be addressed. And that's the other reason why I say like systems think with your team, because then you can have those conversations together. And I think that's really important for team culture. Yeah. And and then just come up with a workaround or maybe like a whole ref. Usually, hopefully it's not a refactor, but yeah, like I think that is such great advice to just include that as part of the process. I think that's super cool that your team at Substantial actually makes that like part of everyone's job to know the system, which is refreshing because nothing's, I think as a designer, it, it's, it'd be nice not to do everything that has to do with ethics or like is design's too important to just be given to designers. Like everyone yeah, should. I don't think ethics and ethical or responsible technology creation or any of this should be siloed in design. I think design is a big driving force of it. And that makes a lot of sense because it is typically designers who are driving, fleshing out a problem space and product market fit. And so it makes a lot of sense, but the business needs to be involved in it too. And engineers need to be involved in it too. And everyone should be a part of, of steering the ship. Yeah. And isn't it nice just to know the rationale yeah. <laughs> behind this? Well, Some people like so that. Uh, we're, you know, as substantial, I would say that I think this is one of the reasons why we do, we have a, a rich culture around this is that the, I, I like to make the analogy that we're like a teaching hospital, right? We're, because technology is changing all the time, we are always in a position to learn. So even though you know, we've launched hundreds of products and services with so many clients in the last 14 years, we are, we are still learning things every single day because this is a changing and ever-changing environment. And so teaching and learning are like core, core parts of our values, values right behind me that are up on a big wall in our office. That's a core part of our values is teaching and learning. And so if you are siloing or isolating out rationale and objectives, and I also think this is a big sign that something is not not quite right. Uh, if, if you cannot tell somebody, whether that's your customers or someone in the ecosystem or your own employees or right, the engineering team, if you cannot be completely transparent about the intentions behind aspects of your service or product, there's probably something not right. What are you hiding? If you can explain to your customers exactly what they're getting for the value, would they still be interested in your product? And if you think back to when we all signed up for our Gmail account <laughs> and we had gotten like several screens that said, yes, this product is free, but we'll be sucking in every single keystroke that you make uh, and selling it for billions of dollars. Like, I don't know what people would have done. We might not have understood enough, even thought twice about it. Gary, this has been a really awesome interview. I think you just, you make me optimistic that, oh, we could do the right thing and still make money. And it's just really refreshing to hear, instead of talking about ethics, it's just saying that, okay, no, I'm optimistic that like technology can do the right thing. And we have individual agency to do the right thing as we are solving these problems as technologists. Thank you so much for 
advocating that doing a whole video series that I noticed you guys uh, started on the substantial website to check that out. Is there anything else that you feel like needs to be said before we sign off? You just mentioned it. We are doing a series on optimistic design. So you can go to substantial.com and see that we have our first season is at least six episodes. Two have already been released. So there should be one coming up. So check that out. Our director of strategy, Wilma Lamb, is uh, insanely talented, is hosting that. And yeah, substantial hiring. So <laughs> if yeah. you are a designer or a developer or a product strategist uh, or product manager, yeah, check out substantial.com. Perfect. And you mentioned that actually before the interview that you guys are distributed. Is that open? That literally mean any... It, it is. We are still, I would say, fairly West Coast centric just from a time zone perspective, but we, we do have some exceptions and we are now fully distributed. So our headquarters will remain in Seattle and will be the home base when people want it, but we are a distributed company now. So yeah, I do mean that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not that, yeah, it, se- it seems like an awesome company. And as you could tell, the, the, the CEO has got a great head on her shoulders. It sounds like awesome work that you guys are doing. So again, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you have a good one. Yep, my pleasure. Thanks again for listening to The Way of Product Design. One quick favor, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your network, your friends, and hit that subscribe button on the show wherever you're listening to it. Thanks again for listening to the show. And I'm really excited to bring more awesome interviews and content your way. So keep listening. You won't be disappointed.